If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, uh, as we continue our series today. Um, I, I did hear last week that Pastor Rob said he was going to leave me a mess to clean up. Um, if you were listening to the message last week, I listened to the message. I don't think there was any mess there. I think he did a great job presenting what Paul was trying to talk to us about in terms of a renewed mind and how we love those that, we, that are kind to us and those that are unkind to us. I think he did a great job in both of those worlds, and, uh, and I was just really encouraged to hear him speak to that. Um, we are in Romans chapter 13 now, though. We're moving into the chapter that's 13, one chapter after 12. And just as a, as a reminder for all of you to know why this is such an important shift, the first 11 chapters of Romans were broken up in two different pieces. Okay, I'm not going to go into the details of all that this morning, except to say once we understood the foundations of who we are with God and without God, once we understand the sovereignty of God, the power of God, how God is in control, all of those things um, are foundational and how we become followers of Christ and what salvation means. When Paul gets to Romans chapter 12, he kicks it into drive. And what I mean by that is he goes from just filling our minds and our hearts with understanding and truth, and he puts it in gear and says, this is how you're supposed to live as a follower of Jesus. He takes over half of the book to fill us and to teach us and to instruct us, the church in Rome, the Christians in Rome, which apply to us as Christians today. And then he turns the corner beginning in chapter 12, puts it in drive and says, now this is how you're going to live. And he kicked off the beginning of Romans chapter 12 with a thesis that I thought was understanding and knowing the will of God. And it's the beginning in chapter 12 that I think paints a picture for the rest of the entire book of Romans. He says this in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. I'm just going to go back for a few minutes. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul turns the corner in the beginning of Romans 12, and he says, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a Christ follower, there is a way for you to live. And that way is to know and experience the will of God for your life. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like first remembering to offer yourself, I'm sorry, to renew your mind. You need to be able to renew your mind. He walks backwards. If you want to understand and know the will of God, you need to be transformed. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And if we want to see our minds renewed, we need to take a step back and offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. God can't change what we won't permit him to change. If we want to see something different and experience a transformed mind, we need to offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, giving him permission to do what he wants to do. And if we aren't willing to do that or we struggle with doing that, Paul says, take a step back and focus on the mercy of God, in view of God's mercy, he says. So begin by understanding just how great God is, that he didn't give us what we deserved. He didn't. He gave me what I didn't deserve. That's called grace. And because of the grace of God and because of the mercy of God, I should want to offer myself as a living sacrifice to say, God, take my thoughts, take my hands, take my feet, take my priorities, take my mind that is in this world 
I give it to you as an offering and a living sacrifice. And when I do that, when you and I do that, our minds begin to get renewed. And as we see a renewed way of thinking, it changes the way we live. And that's how we experience the will of God. It's really, I don't want to say it's simple because it is a process, but it is experiential and it is awesome to experience. So, Two weeks ago, I looked at how we can experience or know God or the will of God through the spiritual gifts. And I broke down what a renewed way of thinking about the spiritual gifts were, according to Paul's words in Romans chapter 12. Last week, Pastor Rob talked about how we can experience and know the will of God through loving people who treat us well and loving people who treat us poorly. And today we're going to continue that theme by knowing and experience the will of God by how we live and respond to governing authorities. Today's message is called Christians and Government God's Way. Now, I want to preface this first by saying we have planned this series out for many, many months. And I broke the passages out a very long time ago and put them in this schedule and this spreadsheet. And then we put our speakers in place based on availability and who can do what. I did not choose to speak this message today. In fact, if I could have been intentional, I would have given it to one of the staff guys and said, have at it, buddy. I did it last year. I didn't want to do this. I looked at it. I'm like, really? I have to do this again? It's different because we're looking at Romans chapter 13 specifically and only Romans chapter 13. But we need to talk about this. There is a rule of thumb that I have heard since I was a child that said there are two things people shouldn't talk about in this world. Number one is religion. And the second one is what? What do you know? Politics. Look at you. You all know it and you all don't follow it. Right? So don't talk about religion. Don't talk about politics. Why do people talk about that or say that? Both of them are charged subjects. They're close to our hearts. They impact the way we think, the way we live, the way we learn. All of these things are influenced. So we're not talking about things on the peripheral. We're things, talking about things on the core. And if you happen to talk to someone that agrees with you in these things, life is good. But if you come across someone who is not on the same page with you and they don't understand how to have a real conversation, things might get a little stressed and tense. So we are going to talk about politics today because I love a good challenge and we need to get through Romans 13. It is the only reason why we are doing one chapter for one week and then we're going to do 14 next week. So no, I'm just kidding. Um, Paul is continuing this theme of knowing the will of God, and this is a very important topic for us to talk about. Now, I'm going to ask you to pause with me just for a moment before we start this, and I have a few things I want to share. I want to stop for a moment, and I want to ask you to do something for me and everyone else in this room. I want to ask you to ask yourself if you're open to hear God's perspective on what we're about to talk about. You see, there's a tendency, especially with sensitive topics, For people to filter God's word through our preferences and our personal beliefs. We accept what we like and we reject what we don't. And in those cases, we may champion some truths while discrediting others. So, before we begin this morning, I have two requests for you. And I'm asking you to please give them great consideration and do them. Number one, be quick to listen and slow to speak. I'll take it another step. Be quick to listen and slow to think about what your response is going to be. Don't pause long enough just to prepare a response to what I'm talking about. See, that's not real listening. 
Waiting for someone to stop talking so that you can rebut something is not real listening. So be quick to listen and slow to speak. You know, that's biblical. James says that in James 1.19. We should stop, we should listen, and we should speak less. The second piece of that is that listening requires reflection on what's being said. That's what the pause does. When we hear something, we pause because sometimes our immediate response is not always the best response. It also lets the Holy Spirit speak to us about our own behaviors, our own attitudes, and our beliefs on these things. So that's the first thing. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. The second is, would you give God permission this morning to renew your mind with his word and his truth on this subject? You may listen to the words, but are you open to making a change this morning if the Holy Spirit is showing you you need to make a change? Are you teachable? Or are you a closed book on changing your opinions? I am continually amazed over the years the times we can lay things out in Scripture and walk things through with people. And they can hear them, and it's like they walk out the door sometimes and they didn't hear a word that was said. I've heard that so many times over my life. I've watched that many times over our life. Can I tell you, I don't have a a real Bible book here, so I'll use my phone and pretend it's a Bible. If, If the word of God is powerful, it's not just because it's written. The word of God has no power if we don't let it transform us. Remember, the Pharisees knew the word of God. You know who else knows the word of God? Satan knows the word of God. The word of God itself is not powerful only on its own. Well, the word doesn't return void. Yes, I understand that. And it's an active living um, word that's sharper than a two-edged sword. What is the word of God's purpose? To transform us into the image of the Son. So my question to you this morning is, are you teachable to hear what God's word says about this? Are you open to making a change? Can I say it this way? Does the Holy Spirit this morning have permission to teach you something new? I've heard people say you can't teach old dogs new tricks. I don't think that applies here because the Holy Spirit's been around forever and yet he continues to change people's lives. And if it was impossible to happen, God would have given up a long time ago. But he is God. He does the impossible, doesn't he? He takes hearts and he takes them that were, brit- that were cold in heart and he makes them beautiful. Just like the man who wrote this book, Paul the Apostle, who was called Saul and is now called Paul, who once persecuted Christians and now is celebrating the life he has through Jesus Christ. That's transformation. That's what God's word can do for you and through you. So those are my two things, my two requests this morning. If you would be willing to do that, I think God could show you something or at least affirm something in your heart if you're already on the same page. So the first seven verses in Romans 13 addresses how Christians are supposed to approach government. And before we read our passage, I want to give a little background of the context of what we're reading while it was being written. What were they doing and how were they living? Who was Paul writing to? His Christian brothers and sisters in Rome. But what was happening in that environment? Understanding that carries a significant amount of weight into what Paul is about to tell us this morning. So all of us understand that there's different types of government structures in the world that we live in. There are democratic structures, socialist structures, communists, uh, monarchies, uh, just to name a few. 
the Roman Empire actually began as a republic, but it eventually it shifted to what they call an autocracy. An autocracy is a government where one person has all of the power. You can call that a monarchy, in which case the power is usually inherited from generations, or you can call it a dictatorship where the power is actually taken, stolen, if you will, and it's ruled with an iron fist to say, I have no authority, I mean, I have no accountability, everything that I do is my decision, I have the power to create death and life and make everything do according to what I am. I am considered a god amongst the people that I lead. Rome was not a democracy. Rome was an autocracy. Rome was led by one individual who had all of the power. That man was considered, his title was the emperor, or what we understand today is the Caesar. Caesar was the title of that individual. Some of you know um, different Caesars of history, like Caesar Augustus or Julius Caesar. Some of you know those names. Caesar was not just a ruler, but in the Roman Empire, the Caesar was considered a god. They would have to pledge their allegiance every year for the people in the Roman Empire to Caesar as their Lord. That's what they did in this government structure. And they were given a certificate every year to confirm that they were good little Romans because Caesar was Lord. That's what they did. So think about the context of what we're talking about. He wasn't just a ruler, he was Lord. Now, when Paul wrote this book of Romans, we think it was around 56 to 58 AD, okay? During that time, the Caesar, during that time, was a 20-something-year-old man, 19 or 20-year-old man, okay? His name was Nero. Think about that. Did you ever consider Nero was basically an old teenager when he started ruling? And yet, that's what he was. Nero was about 19 or 20 years old, and he was the Caesar who was in charge when Paul wrote this book to the church in Rome. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit. So this is the context in which Paul is writing this letter, addressing how Christians and government should work together according to God, not according to our understanding. Let's read Romans 13, 1 through 7. Here's what Paul says. He says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let's pray. Father, heavy words, deep words. I pray that these words would not 
bounce off our minds or our thoughts for a moment, but they would get deeply planted in the soil of our hearts so that we understand what you're teaching us through this word. I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and show us what it looks like to obey our governing authorities and why we do that and how we do that through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Knowing a little bit more of the context of what Paul is saying, when Paul is saying it, carries significant weight to this, to this passage, doesn't it? Think about what I said and what he said to the Christians, and these are very strong words. In a governance or a government authority or a government structure that we have no understanding in the country that we live in. Nothing like what we deal with today. And yet Paul says these words and they carry a lot of weight. So today I have three points, okay? Not because most people are supposed to preach three points. I think Rob did six last week. I think that's what he said, right? And Matt only does one. So we do one, three, six. So I'm right in the middle, okay? That's kind of the way that we run the church. Like I'm kind of in the middle, there, 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 and I just kind of blend it together. So I'm doing three points today. I don't always stick to three points. But I'm going to summarize what Paul is saying here about the role of the Christian and government. And I'm going to do something I don't normally do, and I'll tell you why. I'm going to share with you all of my points up front and then circle back and talk about them as they relate to the passage, and here's why. This is such a charged subject. I can tell you last year when I talked about it that there were people that sent me texts and messages and emails after it telling me why I was wrong for the stuff that I talked about, and can I be honest with you? They didn't even listen past the first point. And after we had conversations and I said, why is what you're saying contradicting what I said? How did what I say disagree with what you just said? Did you listen to the whole thing? Oh, I just got really upset after the first point. Listen. So I'm going to give you all three. So if you get mad, it's all on you. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Three points. Here's the first point that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. The first one is this. We are called to obey governing authorities. We are called as followers of Christ to obey governing authorities. This is not disputable in the scripture. As followers of Christ, Paul is very clear, we are called to obey governing authorities. The second point, our obedience to governing authorities is obedience to God. When we obey governing authorities, Paul teaches us it is as if we are obeying God. And we'll explain why in just a few moments. And the third one, the third one that everyone wants to know about, is our obedience to governing authorities is conditional on their obedience to God. We need to have all three of these and look at the whole picture if we're going to see what a renewed mind looks like as followers of Christ. You with me? Okay, don't email me, okay? I'm just kidding. Those are the three, and this is what we're going to talk about. So I'm just kidding. You can email if you want. I just may not get back to you. Okay, so number one, we are called to obey governing authorities. Let's go back to verse one and see where we get this from. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. What is the word that Paul uses here? Let everyone be subject, or the word is, excuse me, submit to be subject to the governing authorities because all authorities have been established by God. If we want to pursue a renewed mind as followers of Christ, we need to remind ourselves that a genuine follower of Christ who's growing and maturing in their relationship with Jesus submits themselves 
subjects themselves. And that word actually means that they join in helping support the government that they are under, the laws and the decrees that the government in which they live under creates. That's what Paul is saying. And it is our role to submit ourselves to the governments we live under. Hold that thought. Remember the 19 or 20-year-old Caesar named Nero? Well, let's get back to his story. Because when Paul wrote this, he had full power over his empire. Nero had full power over the Roman Empire. He entrusted regions of the empire to governors and officials. But ultimately, whatever Caesar said was the final word. Because like I said earlier, he was considered a god. So yes, the Roman Empire declared Caesar was a god. They had to pray to him. They had to declare him as lord. And people who lived under the control of the Roman Empire dealt with a heavy-handed approach to governing. Of course, they had to declare that Caesar was divine, but they suffered many unjust things as well. They suffered unjust taxation. You were taxed just because you were a headcount in Rome. You were taxed if you had crops. You were taxed if you had income. You were taxed on the taxes that they taxed you about. That's what happened over and over again. And they weren't necessarily legitimate taxes. They were corrupt taxes. Some of you know a little of the story in the New Testament. There are two tax collectors I can think of that were not thought of very well in the New Testament. One was Matthew, and another one was Zacchaeus. These were men who were followers of the Jewish faith. They were Jewish people. And what Rome would do is they would put assessments in areas of the empire. And they would put a numeric amount or a dollar amount on what they wanted to bring in in that area. And then they would hire tax collectors to collect it. But the tax collectors could collect whatever they wanted as long as they met the assessment amount that Rome required. That's why tax collectors got so wealthy, because there was no accountability. They could take from anyone what they wanted, however they wanted. And that's why if you were a Jew and you were being taxed and and paying tax to your fellow Jew who was a tax collector, you saw them as a traitor. Because they were wealthy, they stole from you that you didn't necessarily need to give from them, and they pocketed their own bank accounts and filled their own bank accounts. Make sense? So that's what's happening in that culture. They suffered unjust taxation. They also suffered unjust sentencing. The culture was well associated with slavery. Many people would say, according to some of the historians, that approximately one in three people that lived in the Roman Empire were considered slaves. They faced capital punishment by fighting for their lives or being fed to wild animals in the infamous Colosseum in the name of entertainment. Others were sentenced to crucifixion. They were mocked, insulted, and shamed. In fact, the Romans were the ones that invented crucifixion, and it was the brutal, to this day, the most brutal way of killing someone and shaming someone. Fear was a strong motivator of the Roman emperor during this time, and it only got worse. It only got worse. What was happening during that time? Christians At this point now, 20 years past Jesus being crucified, raising from the dead, ascending into heaven, Christians are living in Rome, and they were already being watched by the Roman governments. Why? Because their actions were suspect. They consistently had their own private meetings, their group gatherings. They consistently talked about this Messiah or this deliverer named Jesus who was raised from the dead. That sounds like a god. And they only recognized Jesus as their Lord, not Caesar. Raised a lot of heads, created a lot of concern, and they were ripe for persecution. So when the opportunity presented itself, it only took a spark to light things up against them, both literally and figuratively. Fast forward about seven or eight years after Paul wrote the book of Romans, 
History tells us there was a great fire in Rome. Some of you have heard about the great fire in Rome. Seven or eight years later, burned for six days. They got it under control. Three days later, it continued to burn. Two-thirds of the entire city was destroyed, and everyone was looking at Nero saying that he lit it himself. Some of you heard them say, like, he played the fiddle while Rome burned. Some of you have heard that phrase before. So Nero, to get it off of himself, blamed someone, needed a scapegoat. Who did he blame? Christians. And by putting the blame on the Christians, that was the spark, if you will, that began significant persecution against them. Now think about what we're talking about. Paul writes this about eight years before all of that begins to happen. Do we think the word of God was relevant eight years before and now irrelevant eight years later? No. We're 2,000 years past that today and we're saying the Bible is still as relevant today as it was when it was written. So we need to understand, and it's so significant to understand, we are called to obey our governing authorities. So what is he really getting at here? Because obedience sounds a little difficult, understanding the circumstances. It's important for us to understand if God has created a governing structure over us as followers of Christ, we have a responsibility to be the best model citizens that you could be under that government and to support that government. Point two, our obedience to governing authorities is obedience to God. That's what Paul says as we move on to verse two. He says, consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. This is also why you pay taxes for the authorities or God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. And if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Remember the taxation that was happening during this time. And what is Paul saying? Follow the law. Be good law-abiding Christ followers. Now, this is not saying the governing leaders are gods. But what this is saying is that all governing authority comes only from God. In fact, the Bible is very clear about this, that any authority that exists in this world doesn't come from man at all. Any authority that comes from this world comes only from God. And if a man has a position of power or a woman has a position of power in this world, that power has always been put in place by God. He is the one that gives. He is the one that receives. Now, your brain might be scrambling a little bit to say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. There's some pretty crazy people. The truth is still the truth. And there are examples in both situations. If we go all the way to the Old Testament, we can see, and we're not going to turn there this morning, but when Moses talks to Pharaoh, about what God says to him. He says that for this specific purpose, God raised Pharaoh up to a place of power and position. Why? To demonstrate the power and the authority of who God really is. He brought him to a place of influence and a place of power. You can see examples of that through the Old Testament. You can, you can jump into the New Testament when Jesus stood before Pilate. Some of you know the governor, Pilate, he stood before when he was being interrogated and questioned for all of these accusations that he was being charged with. And Jesus didn't respond. And he asked him question after question. And finally, Pilate looks at him and says, don't you recognize and realize that I have the power to free you or I have the power to crucify you? And you know what Jesus said to him in response? John 19, 10 through 11. Look what he says. Why don't you talk to me, Pilate demanded. 
Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? And look what Jesus says in verse 11. Then Jesus said, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. This is the word. What is he saying? Don't you know the authority I have over you, Jesus? And Jesus says, you wouldn't have any authority if my father didn't already give it to you. Think about what we're talking about this morning. We need to understand this because we have to have a very healthy understanding that governing authorities are put in place by God to establish law and order. And there's a reason for that because God is a God of order. Law creates order. Lawlessness creates chaos. Which one is God? He is a God of order. He establishes governing authorities. He puts people in place for such a time as this. Now, you might sit here listening and say, well, what about this guy? And what about this guy? And what about this guy? And these are all examples of evil people. Can I tell you, none of those examples change what we see in this scripture. Everyone who has any authority in this world have been given that authority by God. Because he is the ultimate authority. If he isn't the ultimate authority, he doesn't have the power. If he's a God of order, there has to be law. And laws create orders, order. Now, this is a fact. In the context of what is good, people who struggle to obey governing authorities don't have a, relation, don't have a leadership issue. I'm talking about the context of things that are good. There are some people that struggle to obey governing authorities. You may know some of those people. They want to bend the rules, change the law. I don't really like this. They want to go and approach the laws of the land like they're walking into Shady Maple. And all the laws, you know what I'm talking about, Shady Maple people. They're looking, they've got all these laws, and they're like, well, I kind of like that law, and I like that one. I'm not touching that law. And they walk around, and that's how they navigate the world that we live in under the government structure. Paul is very clear that Christians do not have that don't have that privilege. We cannot take that, that privilege and pick and choose what laws we choose to follow and which laws we choose not to follow. Remember, there's still a point three. So he uses an example that I think we can all relate to. He uses the example of paying taxes, and he says, what about us? What about you? Do you pay your taxes? Well, sure, we pay our taxes. Do you cheat on your taxes? Do you lie on your taxes? Well, the government takes so much from me, Pastor Paul. They shouldn't be taking, do you lie on your taxes? Well, they don't know how hard it is for me to live in this. Are you following the laws? What's the big deal? Well, I don't know. What is the big deal? Is it illegal for the government to put taxes in place on the people that they rule? No. Do we think they spend all of that money well? No. Right? How many of us would say, stop giving my money away to you so I can put it in places that I want? Here's what I want you to hear about this. This is so important because this cuts right to the core. If you're lying on your taxes, if you're lying in your financial situation because you're justifying why the government should or shouldn't be getting something, you are not disobeying the government. You're disobeying God. I am disobeying God. I am not just disobeying the government. And I can't justify that with anything else that I want to do. Listen, this gets get real, real. If we follow the speed limit, we are, disobeying, we, we are not disobeying anyone. When we break the speed limit, what's the big deal? 
two, degree, two miles an hour, five miles an hour, 15 miles an hour. We're not disobeying the law alone. We're disobeying God. I disobey God a lot. And some of you really disobey God. I know, I see you. Come on. You can say, come on, what's the big deal? Right, what's the big deal? I'll tell you what the big deal is. Every time we cross a line and violate a law that's put in place for our good, it's easier to do it again. Every time we violate authority that we think really is not that significant, it's easier for us to take another step. Most people that go to prison for tax evasion don't start from being law-abiding citizens to being corrupt criminals. They do it one step at a time. Most people don't get on the road and cross the speed limit two or three miles an hour and then immediately go 50 miles over the speed limit. No, they realize that they get comfortable at certain points and they go, well, if I can do three, I can do five. If I can do five, I can do 10. If I can do 10, I can do 30. And crazy stuff starts to happen. You know what I'm talking about? When you pass a law, when you get past, you break a law, I'm going to tell you this, and this is the absolute truth. And some of you have heard me talk about this. Like I like love stealing stuff when I was a kid. I love that. Don't write me hate messages because some of you did it too. But I love taking things when I was a kid and I got really, really good at it. Third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, I'd take stuff out of my friend's pockets on the cafeteria line. I'd go into my teacher's drawers and I would take markers and things out. And I would do this and no one had any idea I was doing it. I would go into stores and I would change prices with my friends to buy things at a reduced rate because I would actually pay for it at a cheaper rate. This is when they had those tag machines. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you older people know what I'm talking about. Click, 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 you know, right? I did all that. We got so good at doing those things, we never, ever got caught. I never got caught. And I'm really, I mean, today's my sister's birthday and my dad's going to be watching this and I don't know what our conversation is going to look like this afternoon, but it's the truth. And I'm telling you that you don't start from doing nothing to everything. It's a slow progression that gets you further and further away from the law. Well, if I can get away with this, I can get away with this. If I can get away with this, I can get away with this. And this is why it's so important for us to obey the law. When my son was buying his truck a number of years ago, we went into the city, and I'm not going to tell you what city it was, but Philadelphia was there. And anyway, I'm just kidding. We, we were there, and we went into the city, and we were buying his truck. And I told him when we got in the car, we're going over to the motor vehicle place. I said, the guy's going to ask you to lie on the sale price if you want to. And he said, what? And I said, he's going to ask you if you want to say that you bought it for a lot less money. He said, why? I said, because you pay less sales tax if you do that. So he's going to ask you whatever you want to put on it that he would do that. I guarantee you he's going to do that. How do you know? Trust me on this one. I wasn't stereotyping anybody. I'm like, I've done this a lot, Jacob. Trust me. We went right to the counter. The first thing he said before we got there, he's like, so what, what price do you want to put on? He goes, do you guys want to change the price? I'm okay with that. And I said, no, we'll pay the, we'll pay the full tax on the price. You would have thought his jaw was going to drop to the floor. He looked at me like, what? And I said, no, because my integrity is not worth $150. It's worth, It's priceless. I'm not going to lose my integrity over $150. You understand what I'm talking about? So we justify these things and say, but the government and all that. No, let's just do it. And what's the big deal? Now, maybe today it's the government. Maybe tomorrow it's your employer. Maybe it's church leadership. Maybe it's your parents or your spouses. God is teaching us that obedience to governing authorities is obedience to God. And if we cannot obey our physical authorities around us, it's impossible for us to obey God. That's why in the Old Testament, he was really strong about this. He says, if you have disobedient children that refuse to follow the parents' instruction, you know what he said about that? This is the Old Testament now. 
He said, take him out of the camp and kill him. What? Now, that's just not like, make your bed. No. All right, let's go. Like, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about that, right? That's be ridiculous. We're talking about an ongoing, if you go and look at it, it's an ongoing pattern of rebellion, 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 that I am not willing to listen to wise counsel. I do not. And he said, if this is the attitude of someone who cannot follow physical authority around them, it'd be better for them not to live. Because if they can't follow a physical authority, they'll never follow the spiritual one. And guess what? The spiritual one is the only one that gives them true life. Think about that this morning and how important it is as parents for us to educate our children and why it's important to follow governing authorities. And if you can't honor and respect governing authorities, you and I will not honor and respect anyone else. And if you want to know how people respond to the leaders around you, I'm sorry, if you want to know how people respond to your leadership, listen to what they talk to you about regarding other leadership. If you want to know how people view you in your leadership, listen to how they speak about other leadership because they can't turn it on like a switch. They either have an issue or they don't, and you can see that very clear. So second point, that was the point. Our obedience to governing authorities is obedience to God. The third point, okay, the one that everyone's waiting for, because this is a big one. Our obedience to governing authorities is conditional on their obedience to God. Look what Paul says in verse 3. He says, for rulers hold no terror for those who do what? Right. But for those who do wrong, do you want to be free from fear and the one in authority? Then do what is what? Right. And you will be commended. Verse 4, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Listen, please, for the one in authority who's God's servant, Scripture says, he is God's servant for our good. What Paul is saying here is he's implying that the leadership and authority that God puts in place is intended to be godly and follow godly laws and godly principles and to govern and to lead in a way that brings law and order according to God's truth. That's what it means. And there are many examples of godly leadership where God puts those in place who then follow God's laws and lead with integrity. But as we all know, there are many examples of people who lead in this world that do not lead with godly instruction. Or maybe some of what they do is godly and a lot of what they do or some of what they do is not godly. And what do we do in situations like that? What I believe Paul's saying through this is you cannot obey. We cannot obey governing authorities that are not obeying God. We have to choose who we're going to follow, who we are going to worship. If I can say it a different way, we have to choose who our Lord really is. There are many examples in the instruction of leaders and governments where they disobey God, where Christians and followers of God disobey them, and they have to choose to obey God over the government. In the Old Testament, we can see guys like Daniel, a young boy, was brought into the nation um, of Babylon and how the laws that were put in place and the desire, even as Daniel started as a 17- or 18-year-old boy, 80 years old, the law was that you could only pray to King Darius. So what did he do when that edict came out? You can only pray to the king. He went right to his room, went up to the upstairs, opened the windows and said, like, look at me. 
I'm going to pray to God. And he wasn't doing it out of spite or dishonor or disrespect. I believe what he did, he always did before. And all he was doing was continuing what he always did. He wasn't doing it to thumb his nose at the king. Actually, you can see that the king very much respected Daniel. But it didn't change his realization and his identity that he was a follower of God and obedient to God over the ones that were around us, around him, the leaders around him. In the New Testament, Peter and John, in Acts chapter 4, when they were preaching and teaching the gospel, and these are very common passages for those that know some of these things, and, and the leaders of, the, of the, the Sanhedrin came to them and they, they threatened them and they said, stop doing what you're doing. You are not allowed to preach the word of Christ and the message of Christ to these people. And they forbid them. They commanded them not to do it. In verse 18, it says, um, the leaders called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach in Jesus' name. But Peter and John re- replied, they said, judge for yourselves whether it's right for us to obey God in his sight, or to listen to you rather than God. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. What are they saying there? They're saying, you may have a law that you're putting in place, but that law directly contradicts God's law, and I have to choose who I'm going to follow. I'm going to follow you, or I'm going to follow God. And can I tell you, for the life or for the followers of Jesus Christ, we always have to choose God. Always have to choose God. Now, some of us are younger and some of us are older, and I'm saying that because we've experienced different things, some for a shorter period of time, others for longer, experiencing many things over many decades. But the last 15 to 18 months in our country has really tested this for a lot of us. We're not just talking about paying taxes. We're talking about what the government says about wearing masks. We're talking about whether the churches are going to stay open or the churches are going to stay closed. And, and you know, I, you've heard me talk about this. We're so sick and tired of talking about this stuff. You know, I'm so tired of actually navigating all of this stuff. What are we going to do? What aren't we going to do? It doesn't matter what our opinions are and what we try to do because we're trying to look at it through the lens of what does obedience to God look like? What does it look like to be obedient to God? And there are some people that have a strong conviction, you know, to say the church should never have closed during that time. And because the church closed, God will never bless you. And I've heard people say that to me. I go, that's just ridiculous. Because in the beginning, when we chose to do some things differently, there were good, honest reasons why. And you know what? Not having services for a while was not sinning against God. There's nothing in scripture that says you have to have a Sunday service. It says you have to gather Don't forsake the gathering of saints. And if the only way you gather with other believers for that period of time is to have to be in church on Sunday mornings, you're missing the point. So there's a window of time that we did that. I don't believe it was sinful. I don't believe we were disobeying God in that. People would say, you should be wearing masks. You shouldn't be wearing masks. What are you doing? Well, in the beginning when we talked about all this stuff, if you were here last year, you heard me talk about that a little bit and said, I'll do it for now. I'll do it for now. Because if I go to a third world country, I'll walk around town. They all do it anyway. This isn't sin for me to do this. I just feel like I'm sinning against God. Well, are you sinning against your brother by actually not thinking about them? That's next week in chapter 14, and Andy's going to talk about that. Okay? So something worked out. So love you, Andy. I don't know if you're going to talk about it, but there you go. Listen, there comes a time when we continue to ask to do becomes detrimental to our spiritual well-being. And in those moments, we have to ask ourselves, because we are dual citizens, right? We're citizens of this world, 
And we are citizens of what? Heaven. I need to ask myself, am I obeying my governing authorities because I'm a good citizen? And hopefully the answer to that is yes. But we must obey our governing authorities until being a good citizen of the world makes us a bad citizen of heaven. Think about that with me. We're supposed to obey our governing authorities until being a good citizen of the world makes us a bad citizen of heaven. If what we're doing in this world is stifling our spiritual growth and my heart bleeds for people that are still isolated 15 months after this thing began and my head just blows up and I'm thinking, how are you growing in relationship with people 15 months later when you're not in relationship with people? How are you growing? How are you building? Uh, If people are lonely, people are struggling, and, and everyone's story is a little bit different. They don't need to be in this building on a Sunday morning. But we still know some people that have barely left their homes in the last 12 months. Or they won't gather with other people out of fear that have become paralyzing fear. And can I tell you, if that's a situation that you have wrestled with or you have struggled with, ask yourself, is it more important to be a citizen of the world or a citizen of heaven? Does God call us to walk through difficult times at the expense of our spiritual vitality? Or does he use difficult times to make us stronger, to draw us closer to him? Because I can tell you what, and you've heard me say this before, there's nothing we've experienced in the last year that holds a candle to what the first century church did under Nero. And the church thrived. And the church gathered. And the church saw miracles. And the church saw the church explode. And they saw salvations. And they saw people come to Christ. And they didn't bow at the hands, at the feet of what everything the leaders were telling them to do. Not because they were trying to thumb their their nose or shake their fist at the government. But they looked at the things that God told them to do. And they saw the things the government asked them to do. And when they weren't the same or they didn't connect, they had to choose. Follow God not follow my government. Because our citizenship of earth is temporal, but our citizenship of heaven is eternal. So we need to obey our governing authorities until being a model earthly citizen makes us a bad heavenly one. I think that that's true. I believe that that's where we need to live. live. And, and I'm not going to give you examples because I feel like when we give examples, people camp on those examples and it's the only thing they can think of. I really believe today that it's more important for us to have a real honest conversation with the Holy Spirit and say, what are the things in my life that are keeping me from being healthier in my walk with Christ? What are the things and the laws and the rules that are being put in my life right now by the governments and the governing authorities around me that are squelching my ability to walk closer to Jesus, to be the hands and feet of Christ, to share the gospel message? Can I tell you, and my heart, there are people for a year that died in homes where there was nobody there to care for them. How many stories have you heard of people that died for a year? I mean, I, I even pulled the pastor card when my mom was in the hospital before she died for a week. And I said, I'm a minister doing a, doing a visit, a clergy visit. Uh, I thought you were a son. I'm both. I need to get in the hospital to see my mom. Nope, sorry. No one's allowed in unless we think they're going to die. That's what they told me. How many of you experienced that? 
How many did you hear of people experiencing that or in homes where they had to visit their family members through, through windows? And I'm thinking, how many souls left this earth without knowing Jesus? Because of isolation and fear and fear and fear. And God, our bodies are the more important thing. Can I tell you, the body lasts for a moment. Our soul lives forever. You hear me on this? Have we taken the Kool-Aid? Have we drunk the wrong stuff? Are we focusing on the wrong thing? You know me enough. If you know me to know we're not promoting you know, foolishness or you know, just to be irresponsible, of course we would never do that. I just spent two points before the third one talking about why we need to obey governing authorities. But when I look at all of those things, I kept saying, God, what are we doing? As a church, what are we doing? Why am I saying goodbye to brothers and sisters that say, like, I refuse to come to church if I have to wear this? And I was like, you're my family, and you're going to leave over that? Why? What are we doing? I can't go to my neighbor's house and knock on their door and invite them over outside. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, guys. We're over a year after this now. We weren't able to do these things or we wouldn't show up, all these things. People were getting ill. They were dying. They were getting sick. And it just continued to go on and on and on. People were not just dying physically. They were dying emotionally. You talk to your counselors. You talk to the professional counselors and the therapists in this culture and ask them how busy their workloads are right now. They will tell you they are backed up. You talk to my wife in the middle schools that she's in and the workload she has every single day in middle schools, how sixth grade, seventh grade, eight kids, eighth graders are cutting. They don't want to be part of their lives. They're talking about suicide. They're talking about being disconnected to life. One kid, six to eight months, couldn't visit anybody. I mean, I'm looking at this stuff and I'm going, we've lost our minds in the midst, in the desire to save us physically, we are withering away emotionally. And can I tell you, that is absolutely going to impact, impact and affect our spiritual well-being and our health. So I don't want to give you examples this morning besides just the world and the culture we're in right now. But I want to ask you, would you take some time? Would you ask God to say, how am I supposed to grow closer to you? And if there's anything that I am following right now in this culture, in this world, that is stopping me from growing closer to you. And I'm going to tell you right now, you've got to ask that question after you hear next week. You've got to put them together. These are all connected. Because if the only thing that allows me to grow spiritually is to abandon my brother and sister that are weaker than me, you're not doing God's word and God's will. I'm going to walk in the power of God, and I love you, brother, but goodbye. That is not biblical. They have to go together. So hold that thought for another week because it's coming, and they have to come together. We can't just look at individual things. Now, you might be listening to this this morning and saying, this feels absolutely impossible to do in this world. Can I tell you? That's why Jesus came, and in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that's why he grew in wisdom and stature and in, in an understanding, it says, with God and with men. That's why he submitted himself to the Father's process and the government around him and the spiritual leaders. That's why he submitted himself to his parents and obeyed their authority. That's why he followed instructions and laws. As long as it didn't contradict God's word, he even submitted himself, he said, to the laws of the land and was crucified because, it, you know, because of it in obedience to God. So all of these things can be done Because Jesus shows us followers of Christ can walk in obedience while still being obedient to God. 
And when the two disconnect, listen, the answer when they disconnect is to obey God. But there's nothing in Scripture that gives us license. Hear me on this, please. There's nothing in Scripture that gives us license to be disrespectful. There's nothing in Scripture that causes us or gives us license to be aggressive, to be abusive, to be haters. There's nothing in Scripture that tells us that it's okay to speak to other people in a derogatory, dehumanizing way. The response of a follower of Christ is to, dis- is to disobey those things that, that disobey God's law, but to do it with respect, but to do it with professional, um, professionalism, not the right word, with godliness, with righteousness, with peace. All of those things we can do and we can stand strong. You don't see Peter and John saying, you know, hey, nuts to you. We're going to do whatever we do. We just said, judge for yourself whether we should obey you or, or, that, or God. We can't help talking about what we've seen and heard. Respect all through the scriptures when they disobey with their leaders. They disobey their leaders or they disagree with their leaders that they do it in a way that is respectful. Can I ask you during this season and as you move forward, when you disagree with your authorities around you, how do you disobey them? How do you respond in disobedience? What are the words you use? What is the tone that you use? What initiatives are you backing to do those things? Because I can tell you anything that promotes lawlessness, anything that promotes hate, anything that promotes anger, and we can say, but there's righteous anger, Paul. There is right. Jesus flipped the temple tables. I, people use that all the time as the reason why they can just be angry at everything. <laughs> Jesus flipped the temple tables. Yeah, well, you're not Jesus. And it was a very specific reason why he was righteously angry. Why? Because they took the truth of God's temple and they turned it into a business. And he was angry because you turned my father's house into a swamp of gross nonsense. My father's house is a house of prayer. He saw something that made him angry and he flipped the temple tables. Is that what we're supposed to do? Christians should just flip tables everywhere they go. No, no. Disagree, disobey if it's not with the government, if the government's not in line with, with, with the word of God and the truth of God, but do it in a way that honors him as your Lord and Savior. Amen? As the worship team comes, we're going to close in a few minutes, and I know we've gone a little bit late this morning, but I'd be remiss to not mention this, and it's so important. Today is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday. We celebrate this day as the day when the Holy Spirit came from heaven to earth to fill the hearts of all who believe in that upper room where they were empowered to do the work of the service. And I think it was a beautiful topic for us to have this morning to connect with Pentecost Sunday. And here's why. Because without the Holy Spirit's power in my life, I am unable to do this. Without the Spirit of God in my life, I am unable to respond and and walk in obedience and also respectfully walk in disobedience as God teaches me or calls me to do. We need the power of God and the Spirit of God in our lives to actually see this come to pass. Amen? We need God's Spirit. And the way that we do that, it's not some magic formula. It's not that something has to change in this moment right now. It's a mindset of our, of our hearts to change, to say, God, we need your spirit. My hands are open. My heart is open. I need you to take the truth of this word, plant it in my heart, and then I need to trust you by walking it out. See, we can believe it in our heads, but if we don't walk it out with our feet, it doesn't do anything. 
Israel didn't see the power of God's spirit when they came to the Red Sea. They saw the power of God's spirit when they stepped into the Red Sea. And when you step into it is when you see the waters part. When you're looking for God's power, don't just believe and wait. Believe, receive, and go and watch what God's going to do. I don't know if I can do this without being angry. I don't know if I can do this without being hurtful. Oh, trust in God's spirit. Spend some time in his presence. Teach me what to say, when to say. You will be amazed at what God will do in you and through you in every circumstance simply because you're available. Amen? I really hope you believe that. Would you stand with me, please, this morning? The worship team's going to close in this song. And I just, I just want to encourage you during this time just to reflect on what we were talking about and ask yourselves this morning, how can you let God, how can you let his spirit take more control of you so that you can walk as a believer who walks in a spirit of peace, kindness, and obedience? In Jesus' name.